Well, as always, it's good to see each of you here this morning. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles once again and turn back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to continue in our exposition of uh, this uh, section of Scripture where our Lord Jesus Christ is addressing the seven churches of Asia Minor. Those seven churches, in a very real way, uh, uh, manifest and and set forth before us uh, many of the qualities that we see in churches today. Many of the qualities of churches that we've seen throughout history. Many things are in these seven letters that still pertain to us today. And so this is why we've been looking at this section of Scripture. And I hope and I pray that through this study that our Lord Jesus Christ has been ministering to your soul. I hope and I pray that you have been seeing through this study how that our Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known to particular churches in particular ways. There's a very real sense in which we can say this, that Jesus Christ knows the particular needs of his churches and he addresses himself to them. And I hope that's been beneficial to you. I hope you've seen in this time of study the Lord Jesus Christ ministering to you in a specific way. I hope and I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to do that. So with all this in mind, let's take our Bibles and we'll go back again, as I said, to Revelation chapter 3. And today we will look at the church in Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, and we will be reading from verses 7 through 13. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Please hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast, I'm sorry, excuse me. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is, which is the new Jerusalem which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, here we are looking at this sixth church here now in this section of the book of Revelation. And this particular church has a few uh, characteristics concerning it that are noteworthy. The first thing that we see about this church is that this church, along with the other church you might remember that we looked at, the second church, the church at Smyrna, are the only churches in this section of Scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ has nothing to say by way of condemnation. Everything about this church is what a church should be, and in many ways this church is a model church. This church we will see is given great opportunities for further service for our Lord Jesus Christ. And this church, again, is a church wherein Jesus Christ is made known. But what I want to do particularly this morning is I want you to see how our Lord Jesus Christ relates to this particular church. And by doing that, I want you to see how Jesus Christ relates to every church. As a matter of fact, I would say this to you, that in this passage of Scripture, this church receives from the Lord Jesus Christ things that are unique it's kind of interesting in having looked at these other churches uh, uh, that we've seen. Every one of the churches that have been addressed have been addressed by the Lord Jesus Christ in things that we have already seen in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. In that passage of Scripture, the Lord Jesus Christ made himself known through the Apostle John in such a way as to reveal many things concerning his nature and his character. And what our Lord had done in addressing each of the churches from that point on is that he would pull elements from that, from that revelation. He would pull elements from that and he would apply to the specific needs of the church. Well, when it comes to this church in Philadelphia, what we find is our Lord Jesus Christ is revealing himself in a new way. 
He reveals himself by way of characteristics that show him to be the true Messiah, that show him to be the one who possesses true deity, that show him to be the one who opens and closes. He has this key of David, as he's made mention of there in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, eighth, cha in the eighth verse, I believe it is. And so our Lord presents himself to the church in a very particular and a very unique way. And what that reminds us of is essentially this, is that our Lord Jesus Christ relates to his church and to his churches in ways that are specific to their situation. And because of this, I want you to think together with me the reality that Christ sustains to this particular church. I would even suggest this to you. As our Lord addressed himself to every one of the needs that were present in those churches, so our Lord Jesus Christ addresses himself to the needs that are in our church as well. <clears throat> our Lord Jesus Christ can make known to us certain aspects of his nature. And in those elements of his nature, he can minister to us in a way that is not only beneficial to our souls, but also in a way that will draw out deeper measures of love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this idea of how Christ relates to the church. You know, if we were to take a step back from the book of Revelation and we were to consider this question, how does Christ, how does Christ relate to his church? We would have to say a number of things. Number one, we would say this, that Christ relates to his church by the reality of love. You remember what we've, what we've seen in the past in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, how that Christ loved the church, how that Christ washed the church from her sins in his own blood. Again, taking up what we saw earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, how that the Lord Jesus Christ, again, has this great love relation with the church. And everything that Jesus Christ has done for the church is on the basis of his love for his people. And I want you to see this. I want you to be aware of this. Because this is one of the fundamental realities that we, again, gain much benefit from. To know that this church, this particular church, is loved by Jesus Christ. To know that you as an individual are loved by Jesus Christ. These are, the, these are the very building blocks of all of your relationship with God. The fact that Jesus Christ loves you. The other thing that I would suggest to you by way of the relationship that Christ sustains to his church is that it is a relationship not only of love, but it is a relationship that forms and creates holiness within his people. This is the thing that we see over and over again. Even there again in that passage of scripture in Revelation chapter 1. He loved the church and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. He washed us, he cleanses us, you see. And it's the same thing again in that passage in Ephesians chapter 5. He, 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 uh, he, gave, he gave himself to the, uh, for the church that we might be a holy people. And so these elements of Christ's love and Christ's and Christ desire to make his people a holy people are fundamental and, and, again, very essential to our understanding of our relationship that we sustain with the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this, in this particular passage, what we are going to see is that our Lord makes himself known to the church at Philadelphia in these new ways that we've not seen so far. We've seen them in other sections of Scripture, but we've not seen them here in the, in the book of, of Revelation. Now, this church in Philadelphia, again, was a, was a church. It was a small church. It was a church, again, that our Lord Jesus Christ even says, again, I know, you're, I, I know that you have a little strength. It was not a great church of great numbers or great kind of uh, a notoriety. It was a church, again, very much like many of our churches today, a small church, a church, again, that the outsiders would look at and think that there may not have been much going on there. But this was this church. And again, this church was loved by Jesus Christ. We're reminded again that our size and our strength really don't matter to the Lord Jesus Christ. What matters is our faithfulness to him. And he'll make, he'll make note of that as well. But again, this church, uh, this church in Philadelphia is kind of interesting because not only of the smallness of its size and the weakness of its strength, but it's also interesting to us because of the great opportunity that God, that our Lord Jesus Christ sets before it. Before it. He says, I have set before you an open door. And we'll take a look at what that means later on. But this church, this little church in Philadelphia, was located in a city that had kind of an interesting history. Uh, this city, again, was a city, was something of a gateway city. Uh, this city was a city that the Greeks used to kind of convey and to propagate uh, Greek thought and Greek, we would say more than just philosophy, uh, Greek culture to, to the area of Asia Minor. And there is a sense, even apart from its missionary 
uh, emphasis that we see here that our Lord Jesus gives to it, I set before you an open door, it even adds something of a quote-unquote missionary emphasis by way of the extension of Greek culture in its day. Again, this uh, city of Philadelphia was located on a, on a very popular thoroughfare. Uh, it would have been a center of commerce. Uh, it was located in a very fertile area uh, because there was much by way of volcanic uh, activity there. There was much by way of the, uh, the growth of uh, vineyards and, and the production of wine. One of the other things about this city, however, was that this city was located on a fault line. And it was exposed and it had experienced many earthquakes in its history. And these earthquakes, again, were, 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 were very troublesome to the people that lived there. And we're going to see that all these elements, by way, of this, uh, by way of the nature of this city, play into what our Lord Jesus Christ reveals or what he says uh, to this church. Another thing that's interesting about this city is the, is the name itself, the city of Philadelphia. Now, most of us know Philadelphia. When we think of the city of Philadelphia, the first thing that comes to our mind is the city of brotherly love. And what's interesting is that this city was truly named for brotherly love. The first, uh, the founder of the city was a man by the name of, I believe his name was Attalus. And Attalus had a very, had a brother who he loved very much. And this, this love that he had for his brother was so well known that whenever, when this man founded this city, the city was named after him and took on the name Philadelphia. In, in, in order to recognize the great love that he had for his brother. And so this is what we see by way of the background uh, of this city. Well, it's to this city that there was a church, and to this church in this city, our Lord Jesus Christ has a message. And what's interesting to see, as I said before, is that our Lord Jesus Christ has a message that is unique and specific to the needs of that congregation. My friends, please hear me. Jesus Christ is everything that we as a congregation need. Jesus Christ is everything that you as an individual need. Jesus Christ by way of his nature. Jesus Christ by way of his work. Everything we see, he, he, he addresses himself to the great needs of his people. And I want to I I set this before you in such a way as to, as to really develop this sermon along two primary points. Number one, I want you to see that our Lord Jesus Christ is everything that this church needs him to be by way of his nature. He's going to identify himself by way of these terms, uh, the holy and the true, the one who holds the key of David, the one who opens and no man shuts. Again, by way of his nature, he reveals himself showing that, that he is exactly what they need. The second thing I want to bring out to you is that our Lord Jesus Christ also shows himself to be sufficient to the church's needs by way of what he does for them. And we're going to see that what he does for them is he recognizes their faithfulness to him. He says that he will vindicate them in the face of their antagonist. He says that he will reward them for faithful service. He says again that he will set before them opportunities for service and for ministry. And all these things again are showing to us that Jesus Christ is always sufficient for the needs of his people. Whether those needs be the needs of a congregation or whether those needs be the needs of an individual. And I want to ask you here this morning then, and, and maybe we don't do this sufficiently enough. Maybe we don't think sufficiently as to what we need as a congregation. Maybe you're here this morning thinking, and there's nothing wrong with this. I understand it, that you're thinking of what your own personal spiritual needs are before God. There's nothing wrong with that. I want you to come, and I want you to hear the Word of God being opened up to you. And I want you to grab, I want you to take from the Word of God the truths that Jesus Christ set before you. But Jesus Christ not only deals with individual persons, he deals with churches as well. And this church, Nazareth Baptist Church, has spiritual needs. And Jesus Christ is sufficient to every one of those needs. And this church, this uh, uh, Nazareth Baptist Church, has these things that our Lord Jesus Christ makes known to us by way of his nature and character. Oh, I hope I, and I hope and I pray that you love these things about Christ. But I also hope and I pray <clears throat> that by way of your individual needs, you will see something in the word of God today that makes Jesus Christ all that much more appealing to you. That you see something in the Lord Jesus Christ that draws out these measures of love for him. And so with all this in mind, I want to set before you again this, uh, in this passage of scripture. I want to set before you our, this, this primary uh, point, And it's essentially this. Jesus Christ is everything to his church, both by way of who he is and by what he does. 
What's our central proposition? What's our primary doctrine? Jesus Christ is everything to his church, both by who he is and by what he does. And so I hope to work this out for you here uh, this morning. And the first thing I want to draw your attention then to is to our Lord Jesus Christ as to who he is. Notice how he identifies himself here, uh, here in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key, uh, the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Here in this passage of scripture then we see our Lord Jesus Christ set forth in these four different ways. The first way that he is set forth, he is set forth by way of the glory of his holiness. This is a wonderful designation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how I said before that whenever we take a look at what our Lord Jesus Christ is by way of his relationship to his church or his relationship to, to, to us as individual persons, it's a relationship of love but also a relationship of holiness. And when our Lord Jesus Christ takes this title to himself, there are two things specifically that he's setting before our thinking. Number one, he's setting before our thinking the reality of his messianic office. So many times in scripture, Jesus Christ as Messiah is referred to as the Holy One. Again, we see this in a number of passages of scripture, both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, again, Jesus Christ was encountering uh, that individual that was possessed with demons. And, what did our, and what, how did they respond to him? Mark chapter 1, verse 24, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art, the Holy One of God. And when Jesus Christ presents himself to this church as he that is holy, he is, making, he is giving reference to the fact that he is the true Messiah. That will be significant because the antagonist of this little church was the Jewish synagogue. And by way of the Jewish synagogue, there was all kind of pressure being put upon this little church. And Jesus Christ, again, comes to this church and it reminds them that he is the true and indeed the only Messiah we see this again in the book of Acts in a number of places. Acts chapter 2, verse 27, Peter is preaching. And how does he preach Jesus Christ? He preaches Jesus Christ as the true Messiah. Acts chapter 2, verse 27, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Here is Peter quoting from Psalm 16. And again, the reference here is to Jesus Christ as Messiah, as the holy one. In Acts chapter 13, verse 35, we read again the following. He thee, wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Well, when Peter is speaking uh, again in a, in, a, in a way of confrontation uh, to the Jewish authorities, he reminds them of their guilt for crucifying the one who is God's Messiah. Uh, in, in Acts chapter 3, verse 14, But you denied the holy one and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And so when our Lord Jesus Christ designates himself to this church that was under, again, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this hostility uh, from the Jewish synagogue, he reminds them that he indeed is the true Messiah. What do we see happening here? Jesus Christ is addressing himself to this church on the basis of their particular need. The point of their difficulty was the point at which Jesus made contact with them. And these things are still true today. What are we as a congregation? Are we a congregation in need of the, of the comfort of Christ? Christ comes to this congregation in that way. Are we a congregation in need of the instruction of Christ? Christ comes to us in that way. Should we be a congregation in need of the protection of Christ? Christ would come to us in that way. Christ is everything to his church, either by way of his essence and nature or by way of what he does. Amen. And so the first thing, again, he identifies himself as the Holy One. Now, the other interesting thing about this designation as the Holy One is this has not only messianic implications, it also has implications by way of his true deity. He takes to himself that very title that over and over again in the book of Isaiah is ascribed to God alone. God only is the Holy One. 
Thus saith again the Holy One, the one who inhabits eternity. And so what we see in this passage of Scripture is our Lord Jesus Christ is coming to this church, making sure they understand the reality of his messianic dignity and, 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 and title, but also understanding that in the face of a, of a world where, where a human man would claim to be emperor and God over all, he alone is the true God. And so Jesus Christ makes himself known again to this little church in ways that are specific to their particular needs. Isaiah 57 verse 15 again speaks of God Almighty as the Holy One. Isaiah 40 verse 25, the same thing. And when Jesus takes this name, this title to himself, he does it again with, a, with intention. And the intention is that you and I might know that this one who ministers to the church is the one who's all-sufficient. A one who has divine power, a one who is a one who is a God, a very God, and the idea again is that there is no need in His church that Jesus Christ cannot attend to. There is no need in your life that Jesus Christ cannot attend to, and so our Lord comes to this church. And as I said, what's interesting is that this designation is not is not uh, listed uh, for us in chapter 1. Take your Bibles and just go back a, a page there to chapter 1 of Revelation. You might remember this. We spent a little bit of time on this, but uh, in chapter 1, uh, verses uh, uh, 13 uh, through 20, we have all these descriptive terms uh, that refer, that, that our Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And up to this point, every message that he has given to each of the churches, he has identified himself by some feature found in these verses right here. Well, this is the first time when our Lord Jesus Christ does not do that. But he gives to them the thing, the, 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 the reality of his nature that is most appropriate to their needs. And so he makes himself known again as the Holy One, the true Messiah, the one who is possessed of true deity and divinity. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our Lord Jesus Christ again shows himself to the church in this way. The second thing, the second way that our Lord identifies himself here again, and this is referring to his nature. He refers to himself as the one that is true. And I do love here in the King James how that the emphasis is given to each of these particulars. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. This is our Lord Jesus Christ now. And again, this idea of Jesus Christ as true. It's interesting, again, this is another one of these things, this is another one of these designations that we see that is true, that, that is given of God himself. And our Lord Jesus Christ makes himself known by this, uh, by this uh, designation. This too also uh, has reference to the divine nature of our Lord. Just again, take your Bibles and go back just a few pages now to 1 John chapter 5. Uh, verse 20, we have again this designation of Jesus Christ being true. And we see this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, the following, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Here is our Lord Jesus Christ, one of these passages that point us to the significance, the greatness of his divine nature. And so Jesus Christ making himself known to this church as the one that is true. And this, this idea of Jesus Christ as the, as the one that is true is very significant for us in our day. And the reason why it's significant for us in our day is along the following lines. There are, there are in a sense, there are blessings and there are conveniences that we experience by living in a pluralistic society. We know that we don't have people jamming uh, their views down our throats, at least for the most part. Things seem to be changing a little bit about that. But we don't have this kind of a, a heavy-handed, top-down uh, you know, version of what has to be, and this is truth and nothing else. And I want you to know and understand that while there are conveniences that go along with that, we should not lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ has made himself known to the church and to the world as he is the one who is true. And the reason why I'm bringing this out is because I want you to know that in this very pluralistic age in which we live, this, this day and age in which there is this, this, this at least this idea of tolerance that, 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 that is present, I want you to understand something. That Jesus Christ is the measure and standard for every truth claim that humanity makes. I want to say that again. Jesus Christ is the measure for every truth claim that humanity makes. 
Every claim of truth, truth must be measured against the person of Christ. Every claim of truth, of truth must be measured against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every claim of truth must come under the scrutiny of the word of God. And so what I would say to you is this, church of Jesus Christ, understand in a world of quote-unquote competing truths, in a world where you can happily embrace your own truth and I can embrace my own truth, I want you to know and understand every truth claim must come under the scrutiny of the word of God and under the one who is truth himself. Amen. Brothers and sisters, again, this will not be something that will be appreciated by those that you come in contact with. But is Jesus Christ again to you what he was to this church in Philadelphia? He says to this church in Philadelphia, yes, there are competing truth claims out there, are there not? But I want you to know that I am the truth. Jesus Christ takes this title to himself, doesn't he? I am the, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus Christ, again, makes himself known by this way. And so here is our Lord Jesus Christ. And stop and think of what that would be in the day in which this little church at Philadelphia was there. Again, there were the, there were the, there were the claims of the synagogue. You see, again, the, the, the ostra, uh, being ostracized by the synagogue, being cast out of the synagogue. And Jesus Christ wants this little church to know, again, again my, little, my, my little church, you have taken a stand not only for the truth, but with the truth. And this is why we're going to see in a little bit when Jesus Christ, by way of not only who he is, but by way of what he does, he vindicates his church. And we'll see this here shortly. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, he makes himself known in these terms that, that refer to his divine nature, his messianic glory, his messianic dignity. He refers to himself as the one that is true. This third designation now that we see of our Lord Jesus Christ has an interesting parallel for us or an interesting background in the Old Testament. Notice what we have here. These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, and he that hath the key of David. Now, this is a very interesting little designation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why it's an interesting designation of our Lord Jesus Christ is because this very phrase, the key of David, is found in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. And in that passage of scripture, during the reign of Hezekiah, there was something of a, of a revival that was going on. There was something of spiritual renewal that was taking place. And there was a man who, under Hezekiah's reign, by the name of Shebna, was, it was the one who had the key to the treasury of David or to the treasury of the kingdom. And this man was not going along with the reforms that were being made. And therefore God brought judgment on this man and he said he would set up another man in his place, a man by the name of Eliakim. And this man Eliakim would do all that which, which God had purposed for him to do. He was given this key. And again, by way of this key, he had authority, and he had authority, and he had access to all the treasures of the kingdom of David. Well, again, this man Eliakim becomes something of a, of a, of a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what, and what Eliakim was, in a, very, in, in a very small or particular way, the Lord Jesus Christ is in a universal way. He has the key to the kingdom of David, you see. He is the one who, who brings people into this kingdom. It's through him and through his authority that you and I come into the blessings of God. Everything by way of the treasures that God has for his people is all held in that key of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he say these things? Why does he say these things to this, to these, to this church here in Philadelphia? Because whatever they were losing by way of what society might grant unto them, there was one who held the key. And that one was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was no ordinary key that he had. He had the key of David, you see, by way of all the covenant blessings coming to the people of God or through the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us again what Paul says, that all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yea and amen. Promises, all the promises of God in him are yea and amen. There are promises in the word of God that are given to churches. There are promises in the word of God that are given to individuals. There are promises in the word of God that are given to you. And they are all yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Why would you turn your back on this one? Why would you leave him off for the world? Why would you take, why would you embrace what the world promises? And you've heard me say this before about sin in the world. It promises more than it can deliver and it takes more than it promises. And it leaves you in the lurch but not our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, here he is again, this one who is holy and true, this one who has the key of David, this one who opens and no man shuts, 
and shuts and no man, and no man uh, uh, opens. You see again, here is this authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the authority of Christ, even in the kingdoms of the world today. The authority of Christ, even in the circumstances of life today. My friends, my brothers and sisters, do you see why I'm saying to you that our Lord Jesus Christ has everything that his church needs him to be and he has everything that you need him to be. He revealed himself in very specific ways to this church. He promises very specific things from his own nature to this church and he'll do the same for you. I don't know what all of your needs are here this morning, but Jesus Christ not only knows he's sufficient to the task. You see, you might say, oh, I have, I'm in a situation that nobody can get me out of. God can't get you out of that. Jesus Christ is God. You have this situation where you say, well, I'm befuddled in my mind. I don't know the right way to go. I don't know if I should do this. I should do this. Listen to the voice of truth, the voice of Jesus Christ speaking through the word of God. You say, I'm up against these insurmountable obstacles. Somebody has shut the door to me here and I can't get through it. Jesus Christ opened doors and no man can shut them. You might say there's a door open and there's a flood of enemies coming in. Jesus Christ closes the door and no one comes in, you see. And so Jesus Christ is ministering to this church in a very specific way from the essence of his nature. Oh, know this Savior. Know this Lord Jesus Christ. Know this one who is the great lover of your soul. You remember what I said? Jesus Christ, uh, the relationship that he sustains to his church is a relationship of love. Let me say this as well. Since it's a relationship of holiness as well. That's why he refers to, that's why he he makes himself known as the Holy One. Oh, this thing of holiness, again, is so so central to what God, what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing in the lives of his people. He not only grants to you holiness, he also works holiness within you. Wouldn't it be inconceivable to think that if Jesus Christ is the Holy One and I am united to Him by faith in some way, shape, or form, there should not be holiness being formed within me? As though being united to the branch, I would give off some kind of foul fruit? But being united to the branch, what what is the fruit that, that manifests itself? It's in true holiness and godliness. Oh, my friends, my brothers and sisters, again, let us be what Christ is calling us to be. So here is our Lord Jesus Christ making himself known to the church here by way of his essential nature. These four things. He goes on to say in verse 8, he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door that no man can shut. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and not denied my name. Again, verse 9, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. I will make them to come down and worship before thy feet. He goes on to here to say in, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast which thou, that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Verse 12, Him that overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem. Again, what I want you to see here is essentially this. In this passage of Scripture, as our Lord Jesus Christ is is ministering to this church, we're seeing two essential things. Number one, we're seeing Christ's relationship to the church on the basis of who he is and the basis of what he does. That's number one. Number two, and we're going to pick this up next week, we see the church's relationship to Christ. And that relationship that the church sustains to Christ is essentially a relationship of obedience and service. We'll get to that next week. And I want to come back to this idea of what Jesus Christ is to his church. And again, we've already talked about the things that, reveal, that, 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 that refer to his, uh, to his essential nature. Now I want you to see those things that refer to what Jesus Christ does for his church. Notice again what we have here. In verse 8, I know thy works, much could be said there. And we do have to make, we, I, I do have to pause here and say this. Because in every one of the other letters except for Smyrna, you remember, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, I know thy works, you remember what he did? He gave a description of those points and those places where they were failing or coming short. Those issues that had to be corrected. And Christ was always dealing in this way with his church. He was always bringing them from where they were to what they ought to be. Well, here in this, in this letter, he, he, he goes right back, past that because there's nothing, there's nothing to be condemned in this church. There is, no, there is no default or defect in this church. And in many ways, it's a model church. 
Now, to be sure, it wasn't possessed of sinless perfection. We know that and we understand that. But it, there was nothing by way of either, of either, how can I say this? There was nothing by way of either purposeful negligence nor purposeful transgressing of the way of God. And so everything that Christ was calling the church to, it was, it was doing. And therefore, Jesus Christ would not condemn this church. Remember I said a few weeks ago how that our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it was the church at... Uh, I think it was the church of Thyatira, that one church. Remember, there were nine things positive that our Lord Jesus Christ said. Nine positive things. And Thyatira came under some, uh, you know, under, I don't want to say severe scrutiny, but it came under serious scrutiny. But there were nine positive things. And at, the, and at the time, I said this. Jesus Christ will never fail to point out that which is positive. Now I want you to hear this. Jesus Christ will never offer criticism where no criticism is needed. This church needs no criticism, and no criticism is given. And so there is much by way of this church, by way of it being a model church for us. But he does say this, Behold, I have set before thee an open door. And, and he goes on to say that no man can shut. And what I want you to be aware of is this, is what one of the things that we consider what Christ does for his church is he sets before the church opportunity. Opportunity for service, opportunity for proclamation, opportunity to experience the things of God in even a deeper way. And so here this church, what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing for this church, he is setting before this church the great opportunity to minister in, its name, in his name. What would it be for our church to have an open door? Maybe another question is this. Does this church have an open door of which we are not taking advantage of? What a point of condemnation that would be. Aren't you glad that our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't condemn this church by saying, I have set before thee an open door and you have not made use of it? What a sad thing that would be. Wouldn't that be a sad thing to hear here at Nosset? Nosset, I have set before you an open door and what have you done with it? I have set before you opportunity to make known the gospel and what have you done with it? I have set before you the opportunity for service within this congregation. And what have you done with it? Oh, aren't you glad our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't say that to this church? And what I want you to see and understand is this. As I said before, Christ does everything to his church. And in this regard, now he gives to his church great opportunity. Well, what is the opportunity for? Well, there are a number of ways in which this, uh, this little phrase is, is, very, is, is understood. Again, various ways. The most common is that it's an opportunity for evangelistic service. And the reason why that is thought is because I think three times the Apostle Paul makes reference to having an open door there in 1 Corinthians 16, 9. I think 2 Corinthians chapter, 12, uh, for, uh, chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 12. I think in the book of Colossians, uh, Paul speaks about this concept of an open door. And the open door speaks really about, in that, in that context, speaks about the ability to preach and to make known Christ. And again, I, in one sense, we can say this. Every church in these United States has an open door. We don't have nobody on the other side of that door saying, you can do whatever you want inside here, but don't take any of that outside here. We don't have that. So we do have an open door. And maybe we, take use, maybe we make use of it. The open door is also considered by, by some to be an open door for service. And I think, again, the, the, the idea of, 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 of proclamation and the idea of service can go hand in hand. No problem there at all. But the other idea is this. There is an open door, and it's an open door of salvation. I have set before you an open door of salvation. The synagogue may lock you out, but I've set before you an open door. Society may lock you out because, again, you're not going along with the, with the, with the idolatrous worship of the culture. But I've given you an open door. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, by way of what he does for this church, he sets before them this open door, this door of service, this door of ministry, this door of opportunity. Brothers and sisters, can we look for opportunities to serve our Lord Jesus Christ in ways that will bring honor to his name and glory to his name? So that's the first thing that he does. He sets before them this door of opportunity. But the next thing I want you to see here is in verse 9. Notice what he says here in verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make them that are the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and to worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. Now this is very, this is, uh, this is severe language in a very real way. 
And what's happening here is our Lord Jesus Christ is calling into account uh, that structure, that structurally, uh, that that. That, that antagonism to the gospel that was structurally in place by way of the Jewish synagogue, not only of Jesus' day, but in the days of the early church as well. That structurally there was opposition to, uh, again, the proclamation of the gospel. You remember there, I believe it was in, uh, in John chapter 9, the blind man, uh, uh, by way of uh, having been healed by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uh, they called the blind man's uh, parents into account, the, the religious authorities. And do you remember what they said? Basically, they say this, look, he's old enough, asking for himself. They didn't want to be, they, they didn't want to be disbarred from the synagogue. They didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to be excommunicated. And therefore, because of that, there was great fear by way of being excommunicated from the synagogue. You can read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 some of the antagonism uh, that was there by way of the Jewish synagogue to the preaching of the gospel. All the way through the book of Acts, we see it. Now, sadly, in church history, there, there's been this uh, hostility, again, uh, toward, the, uh, toward the Jews and toward the, what we would say, the establishment of the synagogue. And that's not a proper thing either. But what I want you to see in this passage of Scripture is essentially this. Christ is saying two things here. Number one, and these two things can be classified under the category of vindication. He is vindicating the church in Philadelphia by saying there is coming a time when those who are of the synagogue, and Jesus says the synagogue of Satan, they say they're, they say they're Jews, but Jesus says they are lying because the true Jew would understand the Messiah when he was there in front of them. And to reject the clarity of who Jesus Christ is, again, this brings the, this brings the synagogue into antagonism with the truth of Christ. But Jesus says this, I will cause them to come and worship at thy feet. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that they're going to worship the church. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is essentially this. They will recognize that Jesus Christ, again, not only, is the, not only is the Messiah, but Jesus Christ as the Messiah loves this little church. There's vindication there. But there's a second thing that's implied here. And it's that there are some of the synagogue that will come and they will join in the worship of Jesus Christ. There is a ministry that goes on to the unconverted Jewish nation. There is a ministry that goes on to the historic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is no barrier that we should erect that would keep us from ministering to those of Jewish descent. As a matter of fact, we go to them. We go eagerly to them. Why? Because we know that God has a people among that nation. And so we preach the gospel. We don't make special caveats uh, just because somebody's of Jewish descent. We don't say that they don't need the gospel. What, what, what an error that would be. No, instead we preach the gospel. Why? Because there are those, God has a remnant among that people that will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But the primary thing I want you to see here is that our Lord Jesus Christ is vindicating this church even in the presence of their antagonist. So again, we have the Lord giving opportunity. We have the Lord vindicating. The next thing I want you to see is that our Lord offers protection for his church. He offers protection. Look what we see here in verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Well, this is a very, very uh, unsettling passage of scripture in one sense. For the church and for the people of God, there's great, there's great comfort here. But in this passage of scripture, our Lord Jesus Christ is very clear that there is a time that is coming upon the whole world that's known as a time of temptation or a time of trial. There is a time that our brother Bob read in Matthew 24 by way of great tribulation coming upon the earth. In a very real sense, this little phrase is referring to Revelation chapter 16 through, I'm um, sorry, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 where we have the unfolding of the judgments of God during the great tribulation. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is making this promise. He's making this promise in a twofold way. Number one, he's making this promise to this church in its particular setting. Now again, we have to get back to the, to the circumstances of this church. And, and part of the, what was going on in the, in the very mindset of the church, we're going to see this 
when Jesus says he's going to reward them again by way of, uh, uh, by way of uh, giving them a, uh, a place in the temple and they will not have to go out anymore. And the idea is essentially this. Philadelphia was besieged because it was on a fault line. There were earthquakes that were happening there all the time. And in, in many times what would happen is that people would not stay in the city. They would go out into the fields. They would, they would literally camp out there. Why? Because they didn't want to be in the city and have things collapsing on them. And when Jesus says that you're going to come in and not go out anymore, he's saying that there is no threat within this city. And so there's a sense in which the specifics of verse 10 can refer to that little window that was there at the end of the first, you know, at the end of the, uh, of the first century, that little window where Philadelphia was a ch true church of Christ that actually existed. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying again, I'm going to offer you protection. But there's a greater application of this to the time of great tribulation that is to come upon the earth. And Jesus Christ here has made a promise to keep his people. Now, there are so many things that need to be said here. We, we've entered into, in one sense, formally, the whole matter of eschatology and how we understand the unfolding of future events. Well, I've told you before that my understanding of future events is that the Lord Jesus Christ, again, is going to catch away his church. And there is going to come a time of great tribulation upon the earth. And this time of tribulation shall be a time of unspeakable horror. This is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ referred to there in Matthew chapter 24. And I would even suggest this to you when you look at Matthew chapter 24 and you look at history in AD 70. There were unspeakable things that happened to the city of Jerusalem. And those things only portend of a greater evil yet to come. And our Lord Jesus Christ gives this great promise. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation, the hour of trial that shall test the whole world. Oh, testing times are coming. Where will I stand? Where will you stand? Where will, the, where will this church stand? And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, he offers opportunity. He offers vindication. He offers protection. But the last thing I want you to see here, by way of our Lord Jesus Christ ministering to this church, being everything that this church needs by way of his nature and by way of his activity, the last thing that he does is he rewards this church. Let's take a look here again what we see uh, there in verse, uh, in verse uh, 12. To him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will come and write, and I will write upon him uh, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. There are interesting things here as well. Again, he will make the, the, the promise here is that all those who overcome, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will make a, a pillar in the temple of his God. There's a sense here in which our Lord Jesus Christ is, is ministering to the church by way both of his divine nature and his human nature. And by way of his human nature, he speaks as the Father, as his God. It's not, it's not in any way suggesting that Jesus Christ does not possess true deity. He is now referring to this church by way, of his, by, way the, by way of the bringing together of his divine and human nature, his divine and human nature in his one person as the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is saying to this church, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Interesting things here. Here is a weak church. You have a little strength. Did you catch that in verse 8? We'll, get, we'll look at that next week. Here is a weak church that becomes a pillar. You see, again, Jesus Christ is able to make the weak strong. Jesus Christ is able to give power to the powerless. And they will stand as pillars in the temple of God. And this idea of a pillar, as I said before, has very many interesting aspects to it. One of the things by way, by way of ancient pillars is in some of the pagan temples, and I don't think that this is where our, where our Lord is going here, but this is an interesting little point. Sometimes some of these pillars in the ancient, in the ancient uh, uh, temples were actually in the form of individual persons. Persons of renown would be a pillar in that pagan temple. Other times there would be names attached to those pillars. But what's really interesting here when our Lord Jesus Christ says, I will put my name, I will, I will put the, the name of my God upon this pillar. What's really interesting is this, is that Philadelphia, this is the city, that this is the name that it's known by. Philadelphia actually changed its name in history. Because of the earthquakes that, that oftentimes uh, kind of you know, devastated that city, there were times when the, Roman, uh, when the Roman emperor had sent funds for the rebuilding of that city. And Philadelphia, out of deference to the kindness of the emperor, 
changed its name to reflect the name of the emperor. And so their name would be changed to reflect the name of the emperor, the one that they would worship. And Jesus Christ says to the faithful church at Philadelphia, I will put the name of my God upon you. I don't care what others call you. I will put the name of my God upon you. You may live in a situation where there's all kind of instability because of of the uh, fault lines and the earthquakes. Again, you'll be a pillar, unmovable. You see what Jesus Christ is doing? The very specifics of the need of that congregation is met in the person of Christ or in the activity of Christ. And it's the same for this church. And it's the same for you as individuals. Do you understand? As I said before, I don't know what your needs are this morning. We all, I'm sure, have needs. Why do you come here? Why do you come to hear the Word of God preached? You come to hear the Word of God preached so you can take something about the truth of Christ with you. That's why you come here. You come here to hear hear Christ being preached. You come here that you might see Christ applied to your life. And that's what's happening in this very passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ, again, is revealing himself to this church in a way that that, that uh, that is specific and particular to that church's needs. And so, my friends, as we come to close out this sermon, what do we see? Well, I want you to see. I I, I made the point. This will be my fourth time making it, but I want you to hear it. Every need that you have, Jesus Christ is sufficient for that need. Do you understand? Every need that you have. Now, don't get me wrong. You you may have to find out how that need is specifically fulfilled. You may have to find out in prayer on your knees, supplicating before God. You may have to pour over the word of God and pray over the word of God and see in the word of God what Christ is revealing about himself that addresses himself to your specific need, but do it. I want you to see as well that our Lord Jesus Christ is able to vindicate all those who stand in a a true Christian fashion for Christ in a culture that seems to be losing its mind. And when you take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, and people not we may even be past the day where, excuse me, where people just politely think you're out of your mind. We may be in the day now where people actually become hostile to you. And I want you to know and understand that Jesus Christ can vindicate you and will vindicate you. Do I need to go on? The Lord Jesus Christ will protect you as well. There is, a, there is a time of, of great shaking coming upon this world, a great a time of great judgment coming upon this culture. Jesus Christ will protect his people. And lastly, Jesus Christ will reward. Do you think our Lord Jesus Christ is going to have you go through all this hardship for his cause and for his sake and leave you unrewarded at the end? Oh, it's an amazing thing about grace, isn't it? Everything that we can do from standing up in the morning. I think Rob was praying that way this morning. We were in there praying, saying he can't even stand, can't even be, take a first step without the grace of God. It's true. And, 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 and again, from that to the, most, to, to the most significant thing you may have ever done for Christ in your life. And I hope those days are yet future for significant things that you do for Christ. I'm saying to you, Jesus Christ gives you that grace, and then in glory, he rewards you for the very things he gave you. Why will you not serve Christ? Why will you not look for opportunities? My brothers and sisters, can I say, I hope I'm not being presumptuous. Can I say this? That Jesus Christ has set before this church an open door. A door of salvation, yes, to come in but a door of opportunity and ministry to go out. Let us make known Christ in our day. You think this world don't need it? It most certainly does. Our Father and our God, give us grace, we pray, in the days to come to take advantage of the open door that you have set before us. Give us grace, we pray. Father, help us to see in your Son, our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, everything that we need for life and eternity. Grant this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.